Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. Our text this morning is one of the most theologically dense passages that we've encountered so far in the book of Luke. It, it, it reveals the, uh, something of the inter-Trinitarian relations as well as God's grace in election. It's only four verses in length, uh, but there is a lot packed into these verses. Now, it's also uh, a very highly controversial text, uh, a very highly controversial subject within Christianity. Uh, The debate over the doctrine of election has raged literally for centuries, and I don't assume that I'm going to be able to settle it in everybody's mind uh, this morning. When I try to uh, cover a controversial subject, some of you have noticed this and pointed these things out to me, I I tend to do three things differently when I cover a topic uh, that is a bit more controversial. First, and I hope I do this all the time, but first of all, I want to be very careful with the text. I'm going to do my best today not to go beyond what the text says. Uh, my goal is not to give you, uh, my goal, in other words, is to give you exegetical induction, not theological deduction, if that means anything to you. In other words, I, I'm not going to uh, try to give you my theological opinions and impose them on the text. Rather, I want to pull out of the biblical text what it actually says. I don't want to add my opinions to the text but rather draw my conclusions that are clearly and explicitly stated in the Bible. So you should see this in the words of the Bible that we're about to read and and, and see if it's really there, because if you don't see it there, you shouldn't believe it. Uh, Again, I have no authority in and of myself. My authority only comes from Scripture, and so uh, that's number one. Second thing I try to do when I teach controversial subjects is to bring other texts of the Bible in to make sure that what I'm saying is accurate. I don't want to build a doctrine based on a uh, potential misinterpretation of one or two verses. We want to look at what does the whole Bible teach on this subject. And so this morning we're going to be looking all over the Bible to make sure that uh, our understanding of this subject is correct. Lastly, when I cover a controversial topic, I often give disclaimers at the end to make sure that I've been clearly understood. And so as we go along this morning, you may start to have questions about election or uh, some of the objections that come into your mind. Just hold on to those until the end, because I'm going to try my best to answer at least some of those questions as best I can. So those are my commitments to you this morning. I will be try to be very careful with how we interpret these verses and address this subject from a biblical perspective, saying what the Bible says and going no further. Now, I do need to ask something of, uh, of you as well. Those are my commitments to you. Now, here's my uh, request from you. Uh, this subject is very uncomfortable for many. I personally did not like it when I first saw it in the Bible uh, many years ago. And so there are entire denominations that try to avoid the subject entirely uh, because either they don't understand it or they just don't want to have anything to do with it. And so I want to uh, encourage you, there's going to be some natural resistance to what we have to look at today, uh, especially if you've never seen the doctrine of divine election before. Uh, this will likely cause you to have a lot of questions and potentially emotional Uh, responses. I want to ask two things of you. Uh, First, just want to reiterate what I said already. Uh, Look in your Bible as we go through these texts and see if what I'm saying is actually there. See if you see it. Uh, Don't take my word for it, but pay close attention to the words of Jesus. And if you don't like what you see or doesn't fit with uh, the church background perhaps that you have, just ask yourself, is this biblical? 
Is this what the Bible teaches? Because we want to test our views against Scripture, and none of us are above error. Uh, So just consider what the Bible teaches. That's the first request. Secondly, if this leads to confusion, as it often does for many of us, uh, please be patient. This is one of the most difficult doctrines of the Bible to accept. And most people, in my experience anyway, tend to bristle uh, initially at the thought of election. It takes time to accept and trust in the goodness of God after encountering this subject in Scripture. So allow God some time to work on your heart and be content to say uh, you don't understand everything there is to know about God. His ways are certainly past finding out. And at the end of the day, there are some questions he simply has not given us all the answers for. But we can trust that he is good, that he does what is right, regardless of how we may not always understand what he's doing. Now, I know I've given you a lot of uh, disclaimers before I've even started, so you know this is going to be fun today. Uh, But before we jump into the text, I want to review from last week, uh, particularly where we ended. You remember last, I'm sorry, not last week, last week we were snowed out. And uh, and it took me, I don't know, two hours to get out of my parking space because they plowed the snow all in my car. Uh, But uh, two weeks ago, we studied the text where Jesus sent uh, 70 men out to preach the gospel of the kingdom. They went from town to town, and uh, he had given them the ability to perform miracles, like healing people that were sick, casting out demons, things like that, as an authentication of their message. When they returned from this journey, they were thrilled. They reported back to Jesus in verse 17 of Luke 10, which says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And you remember Jesus responded to this in verse 20, saying, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. They were excited that they had the power over demons. Jesus pointed them to the far greater reason to rejoice. Their names were written in heaven. They were in the book of life, which means uh, that they were a part of God's kingdom. Their sins had been forgiven, and they would live eternally in heaven. And and that reality is what Jesus says you ought to be rejoicing in. And with that as the backdrop now, we're going to look at the next verse, which is verse 21, which says, In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit, saying, "I, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hid these things from the wise and understanding." And, ha- and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. We're going to comb through these verses very slowly, taking many stops along the way. First, verse 21, notice the explicit reference to all three persons of the Trinity here. It says, Jesus is the one rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, and he prays to the Father. Uh, next, notice that Jesus addresses the Father as the Lord of heaven and earth. He is sovereign over all that he has created. And as we'll see in the next few verses, Jesus confirms this view of God that was held, for instance, by King David in Psalm 24, where he wrote, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. This was the uh, view of God that is all throughout Scripture, and Jesus affirmed this as correct. God is indeed the God, uh, the Lord, the sovereign over heaven and earth. Back to our text, verse 21, let's look at the content of Jesus' praise. He says to the Father, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. He praises the Father for hiding these things from the wise and intelligent people and revealing them to little children. Now, two questions at this point. First of all, what things? Uh, What is he talking about? What is it that's been hidden from the wise and intelligent and revealed to little children? What's he talking about? Second question is, why is this a reason to praise the Father? 
Why is this something that Jesus is thanking God for doing? Uh, To the first question, I want us to remember what uh, the first 20 verses of this chapter are all about. If you just uh, glance over in your Bible, the first 20 verses that we covered a couple of weeks ago, uh, the context is all about salvation. These men were sent out to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, the good news that uh, if they would repent and believe the gospel, that Jesus was uh, the Messiah, the one who had come, uh, if they would believe that message and give their lives to Christ, they could live eternally. They could have their sins forgiven and have their names written in the book of life. That was what those first 20 verses were all about. And then also you have uh, mixed throughout that the message of judgment, that if you refuse the message to repent of your sins and to give your life to Christ, that uh, you would face God's judgment in the end. But what caused some towns and people to accept the message of Jesus and others to reject it. Remember, Jesus said, when you go to some villages, they're going to accept your message. And when you go to others, they'll reject it. And you're supposed to uh, kick the dust off of your feet. According to this verse 21, God was the deciding factor. Some towns saw the mighty works of Jesus and repented, while others saw the same miracles, but they didn't see past that to who Jesus was. God hid this understanding from some who considered themselves wise, and he revealed it to others who were humble and uneducated, like the 12 apostles. Of course, many of them were fishermen. These were not the elites. These were not well-educated men. And yet God caused them to understand things that were hidden from the understanding of the religiously educated Pharisees. And he did this according to verse 21 because it was his will to do so. It had nothing to do with them. Uh, Those that God had chosen to reveal himself to, they, they did nothing to earn this. Now, I don't take this to mean, by the way, that No one who is wise or intelligent can possibly become a Christian. Like, you know, you you have to be stupid in order for God to reveal these things to you. Uh, There are examples in Scripture of wise, intelligent, educated men like the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul was one, you remember his story, he was a religious man persecuting the church, uh, well-educated, and yet God, uh, you know, strikes him down off of his horse on the road to Damascus, shines a great light to him, reveals himself to Paul. And so clearly, God does at times reveal himself to some who are very intelligent and well-educated. But uh, while intelligence at times certainly can be an obstacle to faith, uh, because many times those who consider themselves to be smart are unwilling to consider the claims of Scripture. But intelligence, I don't believe, is an absolute barrier to faith. In other words, I think this verse is saying that intelligence is absolutely irrelevant to faith. God's choice does not depend on your brains. He doesn't choose to reveal himself uh, to those who are the smartest. In fact, God often chooses the uneducated, those who the world looks down on. And so your understanding and knowledge are irrelevant to whether God may choose to draw you to himself. Now that leads to the second question. Why is this something to praise God for? Uh, Why is Jesus rejoicing that the Father has hidden truth from some and revealed it to others? It seems like Jesus is thanking Uh, the Father for hiding these things from the wise, and so he's putting all human arrogance in the wrong. God delights in confounding those in this world who are puffed up in their view of their own intelligence. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise." God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God delights in choosing the weak instead of the strong, and those that the world considers to be foolish instead of those who are considered wise. And he he does this so that no human can boast, so that God gets all the glory. And so Jesus rejoices because this knowledge is revealed to those who, humanly speaking, were the last you would have accepted, uh, expected to receive it. But what about this issue of election? Why does God choose uh, to reveal himself to some while concealing himself from others? Uh, first, before we get to that question, I want to go to a few other texts just to make sure we're on the right track, that we're understanding this properly. Matthew 13 This is Jesus uh, teaching his disciples. Matthew 13, 10 says, The disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Now that should sound familiar. It's a lot like the father has hidden these things from son and, and revealed to others. It's the same concept. And remember, this is the answer to the question about why Jesus taught in parables. He continues in verse 12, For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So Jesus spoke in parables for the purpose of some not understanding. Verse 14, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. So Jesus says that he spoke in parables, so that some who heard would not be able to understand, and would not therefore repent. That's clear in that text, that if it had been given to them to understand, they would have turned. And he, would, and he would have healed them. Verse 16, continuing on, he says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. There are some who Jesus wants to not understand, so that they don't repent. And there are those who Jesus wanted to see and hear and understand his teaching. Now back to our text, verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, that's the end of the prayer. Uh, Verse 21, Jesus was talking to the Father. Now, he transitions to talking to his disciples again. And so, verse 22 says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Now, what is that supposed to mean? Uh, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. What is he talking about there? I believe in this context, he's talking specifically about the hiding and the revealing. Uh, The Father had given the Son the authority to reveal salvation to whom he would. That hiding and revealing that's been given from the Father to the Son. Now let's, uh, again, compare with a few other scriptures to make sure we're on the right track. John 5, verse 19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. 
And so you see there, the son is doing what the father does. Jesus only did what the father led him to do. He even went as far as to say, I can't do anything of myself. Only what the father does, I can do. And so Jesus perfectly executed the father's will, including in choosing to give eternal life to whom he will. And so the triune God is working in unity to save a particular people. John 17, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So the Father has given authority to Christ over all humanity, to give eternal life to those that God, that God the Father has chosen. That's verse 2 of John 17. And in case you missed what was being spoken of in verse 3, Jesus defines eternal life as knowing God through Christ. And so when we talk about God revealing himself to some that he's chosen to, this is the same thing as saying he'd given them eternal life. Because anybody who knows Christ has eternal life. Back to our text, verse 22. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Again, notice the Trinitarian focus of this text. Not only now is the Father the one who hides and reveals, but Jesus is said to reveal to those whom he had chosen who the Father is. Now, this isn't saying that only those chosen know there is a God. I want to make that distinction. Romans 1 makes clear that all humanity has the knowledge that there is a God. Uh, there's plenty of people that know that God exists, but they do not know God. The big difference between knowing there is a God, looking at creation, saying, well, somebody made this. Uh, there's a big difference between knowing that God exists and knowing God. God has made himself clearly known through creation. As Psalm says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And an atheist, uh, Roman says, is somebody who is suppressing the knowledge of God that is written in their heart. Anyone who looks honestly at the wonders of creation knows there was a creator. But there is a big difference between believing in God and knowing him. You can know there is a God, but not know him. And only ones who know God, I'm sorry, the only ones who know God are those the Son has chosen to reveal him to. Uh, Notice the exclusive statement that no one is capable of knowing the Father, except those who the Son has chosen to reveal him to. This is very similar to what Jesus taught in John 6 uh, to the unbelieving crowds there. He said in John six thirty six, But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So Jesus says, uh, you people have seen me and have not believed. You've rejected me. But all those who the Father gives me will come to me. The next verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, verse 40 makes very clear what we're talking about here. Everybody who looks on the Son and believes in him has eternal life. And those who believe in him do so because they were chosen and drawn by the Father. We do not come to Christ on our own. It is the work of God in our hearts to draw us to him. Jesus says this explicitly in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up 
on the last day. Again, verse 65, he says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So the first two verses of our text uh, sets the stage for what follows. God has chosen to reveal himself to some. He has concealed himself from others. And now at this point, we need to stop and address some common feelings about the concept of God's election. First, God's election is pictured in Scripture as an act of grace. God does not owe us eternal life. Uh, Jesus, I'm sorry, we, we have, as sinners, we deserve the judgment of God. So the question should not really be, why doesn't God save everyone? The question should be, why does God save anyone? Uh, If God is just and holy, we don't deserve his grace. We deserve to be punished for our sins and for our rebellion against him. None of us deserve eternal life. Yet in God's grace, he has chosen to save some. We see this in uh, the text we just read, verse 21 at the end there, where he talks about how you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. God's choice to reveal the way of salvation to those he has chosen is his gracious will. Uh, Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, sometimes the question is raised, does this mean that someone can want to come to Christ and God doesn't let them? That may be a question that you have. If God's concealing himself from some, uh, are there people that want to be saved? They want to know Christ, but God has not revealed him to them. So, Uh, They can't, and it's God's fault. That's a common uh, misconception when people encounter this doctrine. Jesus answers this objection in John 6, verse 37. Again, we just read this verse, but I'll read it again. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So only those who are drawn by the Father come to Jesus. Uh, There is no person who comes to Jesus and is cast out, because the only ones coming are the ones who have been drawn. In other words, if you come to Christ in faith and repentance, that is the evidence that God has chosen you. Those who God has not elected don't want him. And if God hadn't chosen to reveal himself to you, you wouldn't want him either. And so I hope that answers that objection. There is no person out there that can rightly say, I wanted to be a Christian, I wanted to be saved, and God wouldn't uh, reveal himself to me or something like that. No. Uh, Jesus explicitly says, anyone who comes to me in faith and repentance, I will never cast out. Third objection raised against the doctrine of election, and perhaps this is the most crucial that we get right. Why does God choose some and not others? Why doesn't he just reveal himself to everyone and then everyone could be saved? Why this revealing to some and concealing from others? And I think this is really the reason there's so much controversy about the doctrine of election. I think it stems from the fact that God has not really given us the answer to this question. When we hear that God has chosen some and not others, we instinctively want to know the criteria of that choice. We want to know why. Uh, What is it that caused God to choose some and not others? Why do they get to be chosen? Why not somebody else? The simple fact is we don't know. Uh, God does not feel the obligation to explain himself to us. He tells us clearly that he's chosen those who would come to him, but he doesn't tell us what caused that choice. Uh, There are many theories Christians have developed over the centuries to explain the doctrine of election, 
And I'll name a few here, but at the end of the day, I actually don't agree with any of them. I think there's holes in each one. Uh, Some people think that God has chosen randomly with no criteria at all. Uh, He just selected some uh, based on nothing. And to me, that seems very unreasonable. I don't think God does anything without reasons. Others think that God has uh, chosen to elect some to salvation because he knew they would respond to the gospel. In other words, God chose to draw certain people to salvation on the basis of how he knew they would respond if drawn. I don't know if that makes sense the way I just said that. Uh, This is known as middle knowledge. This is the idea that uh, God knows whether somebody would respond to the gospel, and so if he knows you would, then he draws you. And that's the the criteria of the choice. Again, I don't personally think this view works either. Uh, For instance, just in the text we looked at two weeks ago, Jesus said, if Tyre and Sidon saw the mighty works Jesus did in other places, they would have repented. So Jesus knew how they would have responded, yet he didn't go there and do those works that would have brought about repentance. Uh, And so that would be just one example from a couple of weeks ago where I think that concept of middle knowledge falls apart. Still others would read these texts and think that election is based on humility. And verse 21 could be used to support that. Uh, The father has revealed himself to little children, he said, and not to the wise and intelligent. Meaning uh, God chooses to reveal Christ to the humble and conceals this knowledge from the proud. The problem then is we really are, at that point, earning salvation on the basis of our goodness, not God's grace. If I'm saved because I was a better person or a more humble person than somebody else, what does that do to the concept of grace? And a good biblical counterexample to this is the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul was not humble when God saved him. Uh, Paul was persecuting the church. He was steeped in pride. He was religiously educated, hated Christianity. And Jesus clearly revealed himself to Paul on the Damascus Road. And so I don't think that particular... Uh, theory works too well. But those are just some of the ideas people have come up with in an attempt to justify God's election. But again, I think there are problems with each one of them. In in my opinion, we are trying to answer a question the Bible simply has not given us the answer to. God chooses, but why he chooses whom he does is known only to him. Deuteronomy 29 verse 29, very important verse says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. At some point, we need to be content with believing the revealed things and trusting God with the secret things. The knowledge God has given us in Scripture must be accepted and believed. And I don't believe the Bible could be clearer that God chooses. Uh, It's clear throughout the New Testament that God chooses whom he will. But we don't have the option of denying election if we would be Bible believers. The Scripture is clear that God does choose those whom he would reveal his son to. But the text doesn't reveal all of the reasons behind that choice. And I think we get into trouble when we start rejecting the revealed things simply because we don't understand them or like them. We also get into trouble when we go beyond what Scripture teaches and try to answer questions the Bible does not give us clear answers to. I want to read a text from uh, Romans 9 that I think addresses the attitude with which we ought to think about God's election. In this context, Paul is talking here about Jacob and Esau, how God chose uh, Jacob and not Esau to be the father of his uh, people, Israel. Verse 11 of Romans 9 says, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, "Jacob Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? 
by no means. Now, that's the objection most people have when they hear about the doctrine of election. Maybe that's what you're thinking right now. If God chooses some and not others, if he reveals himself to some and not others, that, th- that seems unfair. That seems unjust. And Paul anticipates the very objection. That's one reason that I uh, believe that this understanding of divine election is correct, because Paul addresses the natural objection that would be raised in light of this truth. And his answer to the question about whether God is unjust and the end of verse 14 says, by no means. We looked at this phrase, if you remember, on Wednesday night, megenato uh, in Greek, which means absolutely not. It is the strongest way in Greek of saying no. Uh, the King James translates this, God forbid. The translators are trying to convey in English the force of the negative in Greek. The fact that God elects does not mean that God is unjust. Absolutely not. And if you think that election makes God unjust, that means you don't understand election properly. At least part of the reason that God's election is justified is revealed in the next few verses. Verse 14, we continue where Paul says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God is God, and he doesn't owe us an explanation for why he chooses to have mercy on one and harden another. Paul brings up in this text the example of Pharaoh, the fact that God hardened Pharaoh's heart in his rebellion throughout the book of Exodus. And Paul doesn't give us an explanation as to why this is okay. He doesn't try to answer that question as to how is God just in hardening Pharaoh's heart. He just says God did it and God can be merciful to whom he will and God can harden whomever he wants. Verse 19, Paul raises another possible objection. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? If God God is the one who hardened Pharaoh, how is it right to judge Pharaoh? We can't resist God's will, can we? If God has hidden these things from some, how can they be judged for not responding to what they couldn't understand because God didn't reveal it to them? How is that their fault? Uh, It's another common thought when you encounter the doctrine of election. And again, I say, we know that this is the right understanding of election by the fact that Paul anticipated this very objection. And here is Paul's response, verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and and another for dishonorable use? Again, he doesn't really give us a great explanation there. He just says, God doesn't owe us an explanation about why he runs the universe the way he does. The creator of the universe doesn't have to explain himself to his creatures. And this demands that we exercise faith. We have to trust in God's justice. That even though we may not understand it all, God elects, and he doesn't explain to us why he does so. And we need to learn to accept and trust in the justice of God. I've never done this before, uh, but at this point, I'm going to quote an atheist in my sermon, if that's okay. Uh, Christopher Hitchens is my favorite atheist. I don't know if that's okay for me to have a favorite atheist. Um, He passed away a few years ago. Uh, But he was a brilliant man. Obviously, we would disagree on many things. uh, But very articulate and winsome in the way that he spoke. 
And I always felt like he was, for the most part, uh, far more fair than most atheists. I don't know if you ever heard of like Richard Dawkins or somebody like that. Uh, they just tend to kind of be jerks. Uh, but uh, Christopher Hitchens was clever and, and normally quite fair to his opponents when he argued. Uh, this was a debate. I was listening to this last week, and he made this statement that stuck out to me. Again, this is an atheist speaking. He said, a thing that's always baffled me about Christians is they keep asking God, why? Why did you let this happen? Why do you permit all of this suffering? I always thought, that's ridiculous. I mean, if I believed in God, I would have enough respect for the idea of an omniscient, ineffable, omnicompetent, omnipotent, omnipresent deity not to be pestering him with demands for an explanation of himself. It would be enough, surely, that there was this, not that it was some equal that you could be having some bullying match with. You wouldn't do that. I would say the explanation wouldn't be available to me. My brain wouldn't be big enough to understand it. Uh, perhaps we as Christians could learn something from an atheist today, uh, that if God truly is who he says he is, we should not be putting him on trial as though he has to fit within what we think is acceptable. God is the standard of righteousness, and we dare not question his actions. And this leads to the last thing I want to say about election, which is we should ground our understanding of divine election in the biblical teaching of the character of God. What we know about God should inform what we don't know. We know God is good. We know he is just. We know he is holy and, righteousness, uh, holy and righteous. God is gracious and merciful. And any concept we may have about election needs to fit within the character of God as revealed in the Bible. So whatever we think of God's election of some and not all, we dare not say that it's unfair or unjust because God cannot do anything unfair or unjust. This is one reason I cannot accept the idea that election is totally random. I don't believe God does things without reasons. And whatever it is that, God, that causes God to choose some and not others, we need to believe that his choice is in keeping with his character. His election is just. And if you think it isn't, it's because you don't understand the reason for his choice. Jeremiah 9, verse 23, thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. The one who knows and understands God, according to this text, knows that he is loving, just, and righteous. If your view of God makes him anything less than that, you have a wrong view of God. You've misunderstood him. Job 37, 23, the Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness he will not violate. Do you believe that? Don't let the doctrine of divine election make you doubt the justice and abundant righteousness of God. He has promised he will never violate his character. And it requires trust on our part to believe that although we may not understand it, God is always doing what is right. However we are to understand election, it cannot mean that God is sadistic. Some have this idea that if God chooses to elect some for salvation, that means he's cruel and that he somehow gets enjoyment out of the destruction of the non-elect. In fact, uh, John Calvin even made some statements to this effect that I completely disagree with, uh, to say that God is somehow uh, gets some sort of pleasure out of uh, those who he has not chosen to elect suffering in hell. I completely reject that idea. Ezekiel 33 verse 11 God is speaking here, and he says, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. 
turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? I mean, could God be any clearer here? He does not get pleasure in the death of the unsaved. And if you don't understand how that's possible in light of election, let me encourage you, don't try to figure it all out. Just believe them both. Believe that God elects because he clearly says he does. And believe that God is good and loving because he clearly says that as well. And if you can't sort all of that out, uh, join the club of us finite humans who haven't figured God out completely. As Augustine said, if I could fully understand him, he would not be God. So while I understand this doctrine of election is not easy to accept, we need to believe it because the scriptures teach it. We need to believe it in light of what God has already told us about his love and justice. Don't let this change your understanding of the goodness of God. Instead, let the goodness of God inform your understanding of election. Now, I know we've got a long time on two verses. We're going to read the rest of our text. Verse 23, then turning to his disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus pronounces the privilege of being a part of the new covenant. These disciples are able to see the incarnation of God in a human. They understood elements of the gospel that were hidden in the past the mystery that was now revealed. And Jesus says, many prophets and kings in the past look forward to this day, and you have the opportunity to see and understand things that they never did. Uh, Peter wrote something similar in 1 Peter 1 verse 10, where he said, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. It is a privilege to be in the place we are today, to have a completed Bible accessible to us, to understand the gospel in its fullness. This pronouncement of blessing Sounds like how Jesus ended the last section from two weeks ago. Remember Luke 10, verse 20. Jesus said to them, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, I want to tie this statement together with what we've seen so far today about election. Remember two weeks ago, those who were written in the book of life are given eternal life. Those who are not written in the book of life will be cast into hell. We saw that two weeks ago. But when was this book made? Some, have the, some people have this idea that uh, when you repent of your sins and you believe the gospel, you give your life to Jesus, that at that point in time, uh, God writes your name in the book of life. In fact, there's songs written about this. There's a new name written down in heaven. This is a song we used to sing when I was a kid. Um, completely wrong. <laughs> Sorry. Revelation 13 verse 8 says, And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life. Of the Lamb who was slain. So the elect who have been chosen before the foundation of the world, God wrote their names in the book of life. And the choice that God made was before you were saved, before you were born, before the world was created. And Jesus says, if your name was written in that book, you should forever rejoice in that reality. Now, in closing, I want to just give uh, four points of application. In light of the doctrine of election, what, what, how should this affect us? Number one, rejoice. If God has revealed Christ to you, you are blessed. We should rejoice in what our Lord rejoices in. And in this text, Jesus is rejoicing in the electing grace of God. 
So again, whatever misgivings or questions we may have about election, the fact that God has chosen to be gracious to his elect should, should cause us to praise him. Acts eleven eighteen. this is the story of Cornelius. It says, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. I don't have time to unpack all of this, uh, but notice that God granted repentance that leads to salvation. And the disciples glorified God because he had chosen to do that. We should rejoice in the fact that God opens blinded eyes and gives the gift of salvation. Number two, implication of election, be humble. Uh, Your salvation was not your own doing. Jesus says, uh, Jesus paid the penalty for your sins, and God is the only reason you responded to the gospel. If you believed in Christ, it was because God drew you. If Jesus revealed the Father to you, it was because he chose to do so. So don't think you're anything special in and of yourself. You're simply the object of God's grace. Ephesians 2.8 says, By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul says there, you were, not, you were not saved by works, but by faith. And that faith wasn't even your own doing. It was the gift of God. Election teaches us that it is God who opened your eyes to see Jesus. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and he made you alive. You were blind, and he made you see. Number three, serve the one who chose you. Uh, The very next verse in that text in Ephesians, after talking about how we've been saved by grace and not as a result of our own doing, verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God chose you not only to be saved, but to live a life of obedience to his will. By the way, this goes hand in hand with that last point about humility, uh, because Paul wrote in Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is the tension of salvation. It is God who saved you, yet you were saved by placing your faith in Christ. Now that you've been saved, you should go work out your salvation, and yet it is God who is at work in you. Salvation is all of God's grace, and so we should be humble, and we should serve the one who chose us. Number four, spread the good news. Spread the gospel. Now, this may seem like an odd implication of election. Uh, some people have come up with this idea known as hyper-Calvinism that says, uh, basically, if, since God has chosen who, who he wants to be saved, that uh, we should just not bother spreading the gospel. God's going to save who he wants to save, and so we don't need to uh, be involved in that. We just leave it up to him. But that goes directly against what Scripture says. We are commanded over and over again to spread the good news of salvation to everyone. Uh, Just again, in this one text from a couple of weeks ago, Jesus was, uh, today he was teaching on divine election, and it comes immediately after sending 70 people to towns nearby to preach the gospel. So whatever election means, it certainly doesn't mean that we can just sit back and not worry about spreading the good news. Uh, we also can't take another form of hyper-Calvinism, which basically says until you see uh, evidence of God's election, you should not give somebody the gospel. Uh, that's the idea that basically you interact with somebody, you become their friend, and then if you realize God's drawing them, then you present the gospel to them. I reject that as well. Uh, again, in this text in Luke 10, Jesus sent these 70 men to some towns that he knew would accept the message and to other towns that he knew would not accept it. Uh, Charles Spurgeon once was asked about this because Spurgeon was a famous preacher in England and uh, he was asked why he urged people to come to Christ in light of the doctrine of election. 
And he responded by saying that God has not stamped an E on the backs of the elect, so I can't know who they are. So I'm going to preach the gospel to everyone and trust that those who God has chosen will respond. And I think that's a good attitude for us to have. Uh, Yes, God chooses. Yes, God elects. We don't understand all of that. And so we spread the gospel in obedience to his command. Now, I know I've not answered all the questions about election. I do believe this is a biblical doctrine that we need to accept, whether we fully understand it or not. Let's rejoice in the fact that our God is just and righteous. And let's trust that he knows what he's doing, even though we may not understand it. I want to close by reading one final text, Romans 11, starting in verse 33, which says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Father, I thank you for uh, your word and for the depth of the doctrine of your word, God. I pray that you would help us uh, to understand as best we can the things you've revealed to us and to leave to you the things that you haven't revealed. I pray that you would give us uh, a boldness to spread your word, to spread the good news of the gospel and to trust that you have some who you have chosen and who will respond to your drawing and to your prodding to salvation. Pray, God, that you would help each one of us to rejoice in the fact that you chose us, that you allowed us to hear the gospel and to accept it, that you revealed your son to us, that you opened our blinded eyes to see you in all your glory, God. I pray that you would help us to never get over the fact that you were gracious to us in spite of our sin, in spite of our rebellion. You've shown us such kindness and such love. Thank you, Father. Thank you for sending Christ to, uh, to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And thank you for drawing us to him and for giving us eternal life through Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.